Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to what's becoming an annual tradition here on the Legends of the Old West podcast. My interview with New York Times best-selling author Craig Johnson about his latest Walt Longmire mystery novel. The newest installment in the series is called Land of Wolves, and Craig and I reunited at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona to talk about it. As you'll hear, this interview took place two days after the release of the book, so we stayed clear of any major spoilers. You are going to hear about a couple small details, but I promise they don't give anything away about the plot or the twists or anything like that. And we also talked a little bit about writing, because I know we've got some authors or some aspiring authors in the audience, so I think you'll hear some good stuff from Craig on that topic. And finally, just a quick update on another update that's coming out soon. I've planned a major update about the show for a long time, but every time I get ready to release it, something new happens and it delays the update. So I'll be back in a couple weeks to fully explain what's been going on and why we've been gone for so long and what's coming up in the future. Some great things have happened over the last few months, but I just want to wait until they're totally finalized before I talk about them. Thanks for your patience during this unexpectedly long break and this longer than normal opening. So now let's get to Craig Johnson and our discussion of Land of Wolves. Craig, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. This is round three on the Legends of the Old West it podcast. Is. Does that mean Thank I'm a veteran? Am I, was, I, like... I thought about it this morning. You, you have the exalted status of being the only recurring guest on this show. Oh, my goodness. You have the distinction of being the only one who's been back more than once. Oh, wow. I am a combat-hardened veteran. Tell you what. Thank you very point. much wow. for enduring it. Three, uh, three tours. My pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Right, so what I thought we, we might do this time around... Um, Luckily, this time, if any, any listeners who would have heard last year's episode, I, was, I had not quite finished the audiobook version before we sat down to do this. This year, okay. I, can, I can say that I have finished the book. Okay. The whole thing is in the, is in the bag. Don't give anything away. I'm not going to give anything away. That's okay. what I was going to say. We've got several <laughs> things to talk about with the book. Where they're all going to be talked about obliquely and in vague terms. No, I'm just laughing um, because I'm always telling other people, well, don't give anything away. And then inevitably, I'm the one that gives something <laughs> away. Like it's a, don't, well, we're going to try and stay clear of them. I do want to touch on some things. 
things, but we'll obviously stay vague. I don't want to spoil anything. We're doing this interview two days after the book has come out. When people hear this episode, if they listen to it fairly soon after its release, it'll still be within a week. So we definitely don't want to give anything away for anyone who picks up the book down the road. Um, So I I wanted to do a couple things. I want to talk about the book in a couple ways, but I also want to talk to you about writing in general uh-huh. so, so that we don't get too deep into the book and sure, get reveal any spoilers. <clears throat> I know that we have some aspiring authors in the, in the audience. Uh-huh. I have met them and talked to them. I know that there are some, just some new authors. They've written one or two books. And so uh-huh. I just want to hear some, some stories from you and sure, hear some of sure. your tales that might help them as they're moving through the process. I'll and do trying my to best. The game. I'll try. So we're going to split time a little bit. We'll kind of bounce back and forth. But okay. I, wanted, I wanted to start here because I thought this was a fantastic moment in the book, which harkened back to our very first interview in Billings, Wyoming, at the Western Writers' Convention, uh-huh. I asked you for a story that you love from the Old West. And right. you told me the story of Buffalo Bill Cody's body. Yep. <laughs> and that, that story made its way into the book. And I'm not going to give too many details away about it, but I thought that was interesting. So how did that story make it in? And that was I, I had a huge smile on my face listening to it and remembering our first interview. You know, i got to admit that um, what happened was is I, I acquired a uh, cabin up in the Bighorn Mountains, an old cabin. Um, way up there, about eight thousand feet, like it, and uh, and I, you know, started doing the research on it because it was kind of an odd cabin. The, you know, the the way it was structured and everything just didn't seem like the usual mountain cabin. And I thought there must be some kind of a history to this thing or something. And come to find out that it actually was, you know, the headquarters for the National Order of Cowboy Rangers, and uh, and so that's you know where I started wow, like yeah. digging up the ideas and getting the idea that like you know well there's got to be a story to go along with this, and there were a lot of stories to go along with this, but the the big epic one was the one where you know they actually dispatched a couple of riders from Lodge Thirty Four or Ranch Thirty Four, like that, which was where that particular um, <clears throat> I guess social group happened to be, like a fraternal group happened to be. And they're the ones that went after the body of Buffalo Bill, you know, down in Denver, like I'd try and bring it back. And, uh, and I kind of, you know, thought, okay, well, if I'm going to float this cabin into Walt's world, you know, and it's going to be, you know, part of his lexicon, then, you know, maybe I probably need to, you know, advance that idea and get that idea out there already. Like that, so that when I do write that particular book, you know, it'll, you know, it'll have a little bit of a backstory to it already. All right. So that's all those, so those threads that are in the book as well, like the cabin and, and all that history that you detail in the book about Absolutely. that group of rangers, that's all true. And it that is. All comes it is. From well, well, maybe experience. what we'll have to do is you'll have to come up like that and we'll do the next episode, you know, off the porch, you oh, know, the cabin. That'd there be fantastic. <laughs> can, can it just be rented out for a long period sure, of time? Sure, sure. Well, it's not, I'm working on it right now. I need oh, okay. a little bit of work. I guess, so. <laughs> it, might re- it might resemble Walt's cabin. In oh, the yeah, maybe days. worse, maybe okay. far worse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we can sit on the front porch. As long as it has a working front porch, oh, that's yeah. really the best oh, part yeah. of the whole, oh, the yeah. whole nice operation. <laughs> Perfect. Well, th- thinking about small other details that you worked in there, I did love a small one that I want to reveal here. There's not really a spoiler, but I love the inclusion of these Tom Mix toy badges. <laughs> and this is this is going to get into a, a writing question as well. I love that. So how how did you discover these? Are these real? Were they you tend to put a lot of these little real details in oh, there. Yeah. Where did you find that one? Well, they're, they're the real deal. Again, and I've actually got one sitting on my, you know, on my uh, on my writing I desk. I assume you probably okay. did. Oh yeah, yeah. And so so I just started thinking about it and I thought, okay, I needed something like that. I wouldn't don't want to give too much away like that, but there was a character there that didn't speak. And, uh, and he needed an ability to kind of draw attention to himself at one point, you know, sure. in the story, like yep. maybe twice in the story, like or three times in the story. And so I started thinking about it and I thought, okay, that might work. Like, and then I started thinking, you know, well, how in the heck do you get some toy from the late 1940s into the hands of a kid nowadays? Like, right. and so I started working on that idea and I thought, okay, well, 
you know, if, if Ruby, you know, can't get a drawer open or it won't close all the way, and they discovered that these were actually leftovers from when Lucian Connolly uh, was the sheriff there in Absaroka County and used to give them away to kids. Like, it, it seemed like a way to to kind of, you know, go back and touch base with a previous period, like that include, you know, Lucian in that storyline, um, but then also do everything that I needed it to do, like that to actually, you know, draw attention to, you know, this child, like that without him being able to speak. You know, you always run into certain problems whenever you have a character who has limitations, you know, in speech patterns like that, because if they have to convey um, something in the plot, like that, then, you know, it starts getting a little bit tough, like that, and so it was, you know, it was a way to try and solve that problem. Do you enjoy writing challenges like that for yourself? Like when you come up with an idea, do you quickly then realize, oh, okay, if I really want to use this, now I have to figure out the challenge of how this is going to work and where's the backstory come from? Do you find that as, as part, as a, as a fun part of the process, kind of almost painting yourself into a corner to a degree and then figuring out how to get out of it? Oh yeah, like, and I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, when you're writing that first draft, you know, that's when you discover all those problems. Like, oh, and, you know, yeah. and then, you know, I mean, then, then you got plenty of time like that to go through like that and try and figure, you know, the answers out, you know, and hopefully you will. Like, you know, you don't want to ever make a situation that you're like, well, that, you know, well, what you have to do then is you have to abandon the idea. Like, yeah. and it's always very painful to have to do that. So, you know, I was fortunate, look at that, I thought, okay, wait a minute, look at, and of course, I, of course I had one laying on my desk, sure. which kind of made it a little bit easier, like that, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, and then trying to make that connection, you know, between the epic, romantic American West, you know, and then the contemporary West, that's always sure. a challenge, too. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about that uh, in, a, in a second, but I want to focus for, for a quick second on uh, some of those details, um, like the, the Tom Mix badge, I think is interesting, so... I, I guessed you probably had one of those, or at least you'd seen one of those. You seem to put a lot of those things in. Oh, yeah. Like the cabin that we just talked about. I oh, didn't yeah. know that that was probably real life, but you go into such thorough detail about some of these well, things. And it feels you. like they thank have you. to be drawn somewhat from personal experience. So for a writing question, how, how important do you think those kinds of details are, both maybe in a plot function and then the character details? And the one that really springs to mind is, is Vic's eye color or the tarnished gold that you right. always use to describe her right. eyes. For aspiring authors, how, how reliable, how, how big do you think those details are to put in your book? That's your lifeblood is what it is. If you, if you don't, you know, I mean, you can be generic like that, you know, whenever you're writing, but that really isn't going to lead anywhere. Like, I mean, you have to be as specific as you can possibly be. One of the biggest things, I, biggest mistakes that I see a lot of young writers make is, is they're always shooting for a kind of a universal kind mm -hmm. of quality to try and like reach as many readers and, you know, get as much of an impact as they possibly can. And they think to do that, you know, the best way to do it is to leave a lot of detail out. Like, that, and I think that that's a major mistake. I mean, you've really got to try and put as much detail as you can possibly tolerate, you know, into your books. Like now, of course, there's always going to be an overload factor. There's going to sure. be a point in time where you're like, okay, this is getting a little bit stupid, you know. And I remember when I was writing Kindness Goes Unpunished, my wife Judy, I was I was so concerned with the fact that um, here I was, this cowboy writer out of Wyoming, writing a book that took place in Philadelphia. You know, I put everything in there. I put every street name. I put every <laughs> right, building, right. every fountain, every every statue, everything. And finally, when Judy read the rough draft, she said, "This thing reads like a photo's guide. You're going to have to get rid of a lot of this stuff, like that, because it's just it's breaking up the flow, you know, of the book." And she was right. She was absolutely right. Like, and so I, you know, yanked a bunch of that stuff back out because it wasn't essential, you know, to the to the storyline. I was just trying to show off the fact that I had done the research, you know, and I knew sure. what I was talking about. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, that the, the, the essential, then the more detailed that you can be, 
you know, the better off you're going to be with your novel like that. I mean, you know, because readers are sharp. Readers are very, very sharp. And they retain a lot of those details. Like, and I mean, you know, I'll be writing a book, you know, eight books down the road. And somebody right. will write and say, hey, you know, you know, about eight books ago, like that you said, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, and so you got to make yeah. sure you get it right. Like, because if you don't, like, then you've broken that wall. Like, and then, you know, they don't see it as a, as a real place or real characters. Right. That's, that's always what you're shooting for. Like, that is the, the actuality. Do you think those kinds of details and, and that type of character development is what's, is at least to some extent helped these novels become a success not only here but worldwide you're you're just at the beginning of another cross-country tour you've done european tours to support books and everybody seems to I, I'm, I'm constantly surprised at this worldwide following of this small town sheriff as you like to say in the least populated county the least populated state it's fascinating to me i love it but we're here in America. We grew up in a you know uh -huh. a small city in a rural in uh -huh. a rural state. We love the Western United States. Mm -hmm. But people in Germany love these books in France and everywhere else. Is that do you is at least the character development somewhat attributable to the, to that? Oh, I think absolutely that that's the case. Look at um you know I mean you know like any other genre you know whether it be mystery whether it be western whether it be romance science fiction whatever like that um, you can't abandon character. You can't abandon the details that are going to make that character real. And, you know, I think an awful lot of readers, like, they, they expect that to a certain extent. You know, they're, they're not going to give that up, you know, and they're not going to forgive you, you know, if you try and, like, ride roughshod over that sure. idea like that. And so um, I think that, yeah, those, those, those small details, like, that are what are going to, like, make or break, you know, the character. They're going to make or break the plot, too. Um, it's not just character. It's place. You know, you have to be as detailed as you can possibly be. Um, you know, about about that place, you know, and the only way, I don't know, I guess I would have a hard time, you know, if I lived in an apartment in New York or L.A. or something and trying to write about Wyoming, especially that specific part of Wyoming yeah. that I write about, it would be very difficult for me to do that, like that, because I go out and, you know, I, I have, you know, these uh, bits and pieces, you know, of Wyoming, you know, the smell, the sound, the taste, you know, the look, the color, you know, the temperature, all of those things like that are so, so important to me. And they inform, you know, Walt, you know, to such an extent. I mean, in the beginning of this book, like, you know, Walt talks about uh, the wind. You know, he talks about the wind, you know. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, at the edge of the big parks, you know, up in the big horns, you know, asking the, you know, the trees basically to come out and dance, like, you know. And the question becomes, you know, do the trees, you know, miss the wind, you know, whenever the wind is gone, you know. And first of all, it doesn't happen very often that the wind is gone in Wyoming. It like, sounds yeah, like so. it, from what I heard in the book, it sounds like you guys have pretty constant wind. It pretty much is. I think it was that the Eskimos have 50 words for uh, for snow. Like at, and we in Wyoming have 50 words for wind. Like at, most of them not usable in polite society. Mm -hmm. Like at, and so, um, But, you know, th those are the actualities of place. And uh, and I think that, you know, if you leave those things out, you got a problem on your hands. Yeah, actually, I, I in similar straits. I remember writing a screenplay set in West Texas while living in LA mm -hmm. and I'd been to Central Texas, I'd been to Austin, but I'd never been to West Texas. Mm. I'd seen, you know, I'd seen movies and I'd seen that kind of thing, but I you, there's I think imagination can only take you so far yeah. when you're trying at least for scenery, location, those kinds of things. Yeah. If you've never been there, there's only so far your imagination can take you without well, you're going to lose awful, a little bit of authenticity. Well, and an awful lot of the time it's not the big epic stuff, you know, that that's yeah, going to sell the idea. Sure. It can be something very small yeah. and, see, and, and, and seemingly insignificant like that, but suddenly, you know, it's what it is that sells the idea like that, or perfectly describes, you know, what exactly it is that you're trying to say. 
And, uh, you know, boy, being out there and listening and hearing and all that is, is the only way to get those. Yeah, for sure. There's no question. And you mentioned it a second ago, so I do want to come back to this idea of contemporary, the contemporary West uh-huh. versus maybe the old-time Westerns. Right. And I've been curious about this as I've watched um, the rise of the TV show Yellowstone that has become a very popular summer hit now. Uh-huh. I think it's now the most popular show on cable TV in the, in the summertime. It's got huge ratings, doing very well for Paramount. The creator of that show is has made a nice career for himself out of producing things like that. And I wanted to ask you, as you travel across the country and across the world, how are you seeing the, the Western United States, the modern West? How much do people talk about that? How, how are people viewing that kind of world? I think I'm seeing, I feel like, or maybe I'm, it's a little wishful thinking, I feel like I'm seeing a little bit of resurgence of material set in the West and having this modern West feel from your books and the TV show Longmire to Yellowstone, the Paramount Network's got another show coming out in 2020 that's set in the Southwest. There seems to be a little bit more of this focus than I remember several years ago. Are it, you well, seeing it, any of this? Well, you're always going to fight that juggernaut of uh, of of the the you know the epic romantic American West of the past, sure. you know, the you know the period West. Um, and you know, I mean, that's that's the biggest difficulty, of course. I mean, I, I I'm always sitting there, you know, in those meetings with the Western Writers Association, <clears throat> and as always. There are all these people that are trying to rewrite, you know, Louis L'Amour and Zane yeah. Gray. I'll get, and I'm always like, Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray were pretty good at writing. Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray, maybe you need to try something different, you know. And so for me, the obvious thing was is that, you know, try and do something contemporary. Like that, because, I mean, I kind of write what I tend to refer to as socially responsible, you know, crime fiction. Like that, and so I hope that the things that I'm discussing, the things I'm talking about, you know, I'm trying to get something you know, a message across mm-hmm. like that. And that's a lot easier to do, you know, in the world that we live in, you know. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, as far as, like, the media is concerned, am I seeing more and more uh, involvement, like, at, you know, in a, in a higher rate and a lot more of the, you know, the contemporary West? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like, you know, yeah, there are a couple of shows out there now, like that, and uh, every once in a while a movie will pop up, you know. But I think if you did a comparison contrast and did, you know, okay, Contemporary westerns versus you know period westerns. Period westerns are always the ones that win, like that, because everybody likes to ride the horses, and sure. shoot the bad guys, and you know and do all that stuff like that. So I I don't know. I mean I think there's always going to be a niche like that, and I would I would hope you know that it helps that resurgence of the west as a whole, you know, as a genre like that that uh, that contemporary stuff you know kind of helps to kind of you know move that that process along a little bit. I guess maybe at the same at the same by the same token, are you seeing any kind of uptick as far as fans are concerned that there seems to is there potentially a more growing appetite certainly if hollywood is green lighting more shows and if we're maybe we're seeing more books written that it's a pretty clear indication that oh, people yeah. want that material oh, which ob- is kind of where i'm basing some of this on yeah but. yeah i think that's definitely the case i mean you know i i you know obviously you know with the success of longmire right. you know and, and the fact that it's on netflix and it's streaming 24-7, like that. It's not like, you know, we're waiting for reruns to come on or right. anything like that. It's on now all the time. And so what's been kind of interesting to see with that is, of course, you know, that it does trend, you know. And uh, it was interesting, too, because when the new book came out, when Land of Wolves came out here just, you know, what, two days ago, suddenly Longmire was trending, you know, on Netflix again. Really? You know, and, and we're still one of the top 15 shows on Netflix. Okay. And so that's, you know, kind of interesting to see, you know, whenever you've got a symbiotic kind of relationship between books and TV shows and movies and that type of thing, then, yeah, I think one's going to advance the other. No two ways about it. Yeah, I guess it doesn't. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but it makes perfect sense that I'm sure there is, uh, like I just said a second ago, an uptick in popularity 
popularity of the Longmire TV show. When you release a new book, everybody wants to come back and they use the TV show to launch and reading of a new book and they both work together back and forth and they fuel do, each other. They do, and it's, you know, it's interesting too, like that because there's an awful lot of people out there that actually go back and reread all the books before they read the new book. Wow. Which is, That's you know, a commitment. Used to, that was not that big of a deal, like, but now that there are 15 of them, you know, yeah. like, it's, 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 you know, quite an, an, an advancement. But um, but yeah, and then you know the, 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 every day I'm still getting like emails from people that say you know I just found the TV show you know on right. uh, Netflix, and, you know, and I've, I've started reading the books. Okay, you know they'll watch the TV show seven times, they'll binge you know all six sure. seasons about seven or eight times, and then they'll decide okay if I want any more right now you know it looks like I'm going to have to you know jump in to read some books. Okay, but it, it's kind of interesting too because you know you mentioned you know about Paramount and Yellowstone and all these things. I mean what's going on right now is kind of interesting in the in that particular, you know, business, simply because they all—it's interesting, been interesting to watch all of the studios are slowly but surely kind of like you know pulling their material back from a lot of these um, streaming platforms and starting up their own streaming platforms. Right. You know, like Paramount, Warner, Warner Brothers just yeah. you know what six months ago said that they were going to start doing wow. their own, and uh, <clears throat> of course Paramount doing theirs, Disney doing theirs, all these different groups. And I think what happened, of course, is they uh, they discovered that like making TV shows and movies is hard. Having streaming platforms is actually rather easy. But yeah, that, that does make total sense. That it's almost a return to the old Hollywood system, the the vertical Hollywood system where they owned the theaters, the production, the distribution, everything. Yep. So I think we I think we finished up the uh, we took a quick little break in there for all the listeners. Uh, so <laughs> hopefully we finished up and made our points about the the kind of the studio system and and Hollywood now finding that direct pipeline to the audience with the streaming system. Yeah, if you're Warner Brothers, Disney has learned, why not send your stuff directly to the streaming service where everyone's watching their yeah. their shows anyway. So yeah. we're gonna see, you're right, we're gonna see a huge rise in that. So maybe that's just new outlets for these new types of content. I'm hoping that's the case. Like, and it doesn't turn back into an old studio system like right. that where they have so much control, they can, yeah. you know, strangle out the things that they really don't want to do like like westerns like yeah, you know, i'm exactly. hoping that, that won't be the case but yeah. i don't know as long as there's an interest you know as long as there's you know a viewership you know <clears throat> they're going to go with it right yeah no question yeah if if they think there's potential for it they're going to make it yep. so uh, so let's wrap up with two questions uh, back on the book about Walt. Okay. So again, we're, I'm not going to give any details here. We'll, we'll talk around this central piece, but a new piece of technology has been introduced into Walt's life <laughs> in this book, and we're not going to reveal what it is. I'm sure the, listener, the listeners uh, and anyone reading the books will enjoy that. What made it? What made now the right time to introduce this specific piece of technology? Uh, you know, and I don't think it'll give anything away if we we talk about what. Okay, specific it's up to you. Of, I was uh, going to stay coy yeah, with it. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, well, actually, what happened was, as I was talking to a dispatcher from, uh, I did a you know a a speech for like you know the Wyoming Dispatchers Association, and there was one dispatcher there who still would print out the uh, emails of her sheriff okay, and leave them on his desk so that he could handwrite the responses and then she could go back and retype them in and answer his emails. Wow, and that's uh, real too. <laughs> it is, like, and it was just, it was, she'd had it, you know, she'd had it and she, she lowered the boom on him and said, hey, look, you're either going to start, you're going to get a computer and you're going to start answering your own emails or else I'm, I'm, I'm retiring. Like, you know, and boy, nothing scares the living daylights out of a sheriff as much as like their dispatchers saying that they're going to walk out I the door imagine. and never look back. And so, um, so I started thinking about it and I thought, okay, well, Ruby's of a certain age where, you know, she's finally gotten to the point where she's like kind of had it. 
you know, it, it's become a luxury, you know, for Walt, you know, to not have to do this. And so it, uh, it starts complicating things around the office there, you know, whenever this computer first arrives. Like it, and uh, it's certainly humorous, you know, what yeah. happens throughout the entirety of the book. Like, I mean, that, that's always something that, you, you know, you always get surprised by. Like, at least I do. Like, I mean, I really went into this book thinking that, you know, boy, the, the issues that this book deals with are really dark, really weighty, you know, kind of social issues. Yeah. You know, and so I thought this is going to be a really serious book. Like, you know, and then after Depth of Winter, which was another book that was mm -hmm. really serious, like in, in many ways, you know, kind of like, you know, in comparison with the other books that I've done, like a little bit hyper violent. Um, but, you know, you try and do something different with each one. And I thought, okay, well, this is going to be a, you know, it's going to be a really kind of serious book. Okay. And then I don't think what I took into consideration was as Vic kind of comes roaring back mm -hmm. um, with a vengeance, you know. And so she and Henry are always characters that I can count on for a lot of humor, you know, in the books. Look at, and so in this one, you know, she came roaring back. And, uh, and the, the, there was a lot more humor in the book than I suspected, you know, whenever I first started. But uh, and, and then, you know, the other major aspect, of course, is that technological, you know, aspect of trying to drag Walt Longmire kicking and screaming into the 19th right. century, you know. And so, you know, he's uh, he, he just doesn't respond very well to technology. It's not something that he does really well. So I, it'll be interesting to see what people think about how I deal with that in the end. You know, if, I, if I've, you know, if I've, right. uh, summed it up, you know, to their satisfaction or not. Well, I know that I got particular enjoyment out of uh out of the character of Sancho, yeah, I was gonna, I knew I was gonna screw it up. I knew I was not gonna screw up his full name. So generally, I was, I was reaching are, for the shorthand, and I missed that too. Yeah, I mean, generally, what people do is they write me and go that the Bass character with the thirteen-letter yes. name. Like, yes. that's what they do. Like, so. I'll have to start doing that. But yeah, I, I just, I was, I was picturing um, scenes in there of him actually setting up computers for the office, and it just, it was like flashbacks of every anyone who's had to set up their computer oh God, has been yes. through that, crawling yes. under the desk. Yes. Piecing it all together, something's not going to work. So that, those were, I love those moments. Those and they weren't necessarily written to be particularly humorous, oh, but just the fact that they and happened. Walt, everybody's been through that. Well, and Walt has no intuitive knowledge and of that's computers, really funny. you know. Oh. And so, well, and so it's annoying to everybody else yes. because he doesn't know anything. Yeah. Like you know, so I mean, even when he's trying to send an email, like you know, and and you know, and Ruby is like, it's the little paper airplane up on the yeah. right hand corner. And he's like, paper airplane, that's clever. Yeah, you know, like yeah. left <laughs> click and right. <laughs> click or challenges oh, yeah, for Walt, yeah. which is yeah. priceless. Yeah. <laughs> priceless. Um, and so, so that was that's the that was the first half of the, of the Walt stuff that I want to use to wrap up with. The second half is more serious. That this book finds Walt in a more introspective, contemplative world, and and his yeah. his he's contemplating different things throughout the book. Oh yeah, that were that are new to to Walt's mm -hmm. world. And so I again, without talking too much specifically about them. How much of this of that kind of stuff that the readers will certainly understand and see is just natural aftermath from the trauma of Mexico, and how much of it is maybe genuinely hinting at things that might come in Walt's life down the road? Oh, absolutely. Like I mean, it, you know, whenever you know when Walt gets ready to go down into Mexico, like and Henry looks at him and says, "You're going to have to go back, and you're going to have to find that guy that you were in Vietnam, because what you're walking yeah. into here is not a police action. You're walking into a war." 
And if you are not ready for that, then you're not going to make it back. Okay. And so Walt does. Walt unpacks that individual that he was as a Marine investigator in Tansonet Air Force Base in Vietnam, like that back in 1968. Like that. Well, after unpacking that individual, you know, from the Foot Locker, he discovers that that individual does not want to go back into the dark night, you know, gently. Um, he's not going back easy. Like, and so Walt's having to, you know, be confronted, you know, with himself. Um, a past self that you know that you know may be a little bit dangerous. Like it, and so what that does, of course, is is that you know not only is Walt, you know, in many ways it kind of harkens back a little bit to the the proverb that is the uh, right. uh, the title of the book, that a land of strangers is a land of wolves, and uh, <clears throat> Walt finds himself as a stranger in a strange land in his own home. You know, he can't make it all the way home. Um, and then even worse, as a stranger to himself, he doesn't recognize who he himself is. And uh, it starts having, you know, psychological, you know, difficulties for him, like right. uh, to try and overcome that, like And uh, you know, I, I, there, I write the books, you know, in a cyclical pattern, yep. like that, you know, and they're a seasonal pattern. So it takes four books to get through one year of Walt's life, like And of course, I've said it before, like that. The great thing about that is Walt doesn't age as fast as the rest of us, like right. So I can keep him going for a lot longer than you know anybody would suspect, like that. And then the other thing is, is that it gives a resonance to each book. I mean, when you have you know a new a new book come out, it's only a month or two after the last book, and so I don't have the luxury of being able to ignore what happened in of the course, previous yeah. book. I mean, he's got to deal with the things that happened and. Uh, and in this one particularly, it's it's uh, the, the chickens have kind of come home to roost. Yeah, how do you how do you repack that person that you had to unpack? Basically, he's trying to put it back, but yeah. obviously, it's not going to be an easy process. No, he's not going into the eider down real easy. No, like no. And so yeah, so, so I believe this is in the spring, right? It takes place in yeah. March. So this is the spring book, and next time we'll have a we'll have a summer book that we will. Um, that uh, again, following your typical pattern, typically goes outside of of Walt's comfort zone a little uh, bit a little bit like, do you want you want a preview or if, if you want a preview of sure, go, go ahead sure, certainly sure. like no, you just no, said I'm, everybody wants more I'm 13 chapters so. into that one oh. already like it so you know I'm, when do you I'm, take yeah. a break do you ever stop or is no, it just continuous no I, I, I you know I, I you know I had to do about like what 20 cords of firewood and I had to do about 10 tons of hay and <laughs> you know jackhammered an old you know hearth out of the old uh, cabin up there on the mountains and stuff and so I mean there's, there's a lot of physical work involved <laughs> you know there's nothing like working with a jackhammer for about three hours to make you think, you know, damn, I like being a writer. You know, and it's one of those moments like yeah, they really the hit me there. You know, but but I, you know, uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's a joy. You know, I mean, I love the writing process. That's for me the you know the big thing is I really still enjoy it after 15 years. I'm having a great time, and it's not boring like that because you know I, I'm able to do you know with the with the literary press I'm with I'm able to go in any direction I want to do whatever I want to do. And Walt is, you know, very conducive, you know, to whatever it is that I might be interested, you know, in, in writing about. But, uh, yeah, the next one's actually called uh, um, The Next to Last Stand. Okay. And um, the, uh, I, it, I, I will tell you that the, 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 probably the most, you know, uh, the, the biggest item in the entire book is a painting. Um, by uh, a painter by the name of Cassili Adams. Look at, and I know you've seen the painting okay. that because it's called Custer's Last Fight. Okay. <clears throat> and to give you the history of it first, uh, before you find out, you know where it is that you've seen it. Um, Cassili Adams painted this painting about maybe I don't know maybe ten years after um, the actual Little Bighorn Battle. And at that period in time, a lot of what uh, what artists would do is is they would paint these big, huge canvases. Mm -hmm. And this one was like about like nine and a half feet by sixteen and a half feet. And uh, then what they would do is they would take them out and tour them all over the country and charge people two bits to go in and see the painting. You know, and basically the idea being that 
you would be seeing history. You would mm -hmm. see it you know, the way it was. You know, I mean, this is before movies, before sure. TV, all that kind of stuff. So they would tour these books, I mean, tour these paintings. Like, Well, they took this painting out, they toured it, and they brought it back to St. Louis, you know, where uh, Cassili Adams lived, like that. And um, he, uh, there was a big uh, saloon near the train station in St. Louis, like that, and they bought the painting, like that, and they put it up on their wall as a conversation piece, like that. So there it was in the saloon in uh, St. Louis, like that, uh, for a number of years until the saloon went bankrupt. And um, their biggest creditor was a then, at that time, not so large brewery called Anheuser Busch. Right. And uh, Augie Bush walks down to the saloon, like it looks around at him and says, You owe me $10,000. And they said, We don't have any money at all. I'll go, we're bankrupt. And he goes, I'll take the painting. Like and so they took the painting off the wall, took it back, you know, the headquarters of Budweiser, like it in Budweiser, you know, and, and Bush decides, You know what? You know, I'm going to make posters out of this thing. We're going to make prints, and I'm going to send them to every bar and every saloon in the American, all over the country, everywhere. Like, and, and I can't remember how many copies they made. I believe it was over two million copies oh that they made of this print, of this painting. So I know, you, you know yeah. I, 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 I'm pretty sure you've been in a saloon or a bar at one point in time, even just to go in and get, you know, change to, I, you know, park your car. I I'm glanced sure. in a couple exactly, times. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, and so... Um, what you know, everybody. It's, it, it may be the most seen art, art in American history, for gosh sakes. And you know, it's very you know uh, extremely uh, you know it's it's quite possible that this painting you know in, in many ways, other than you know Libby uh, Custer, you know, was one of the things that made Custer as much of you know this this you know this bigger than life legend um, than you know than he possibly was. Look at and uh, of course it sold a lot of beer for Budweiser. Look at and they became the largest brewer in the United States. States. And so after giving out, you know, millions of these posters that they actually even like sent, you know, tubed posters like that to uh, servicemen in World War One, for God's sakes. Wow. Still um, then they were, yeah, they were sending Oh yeah, it was out. still going strong. Like, and then after World War I, I think it was in the 30s, I think it was, they shut down uh, the idea of doing any more posters and then they made a gift of uh, the, uh, uh, the painting <clears throat> to the 7th Cavalry. At that point, the 7th Cavalry was in Fort Bliss, Texas. Okay. And so they gave the painting back to them, and they put it up on the walls of their commissary. And it was there until 1946 when the commissary burned down and the painting was destroyed. Oh, no. Or was it? Uh-oh. Mystery. So that's the beginnings of the next to last stand. Walt's first art heist book. There, oh, perfect. <laughs> There's your cliffhanger, listeners. <laughs> maybe it burned down, maybe it didn't. Here we go. Cool. That's Yeah, and obviously that's a great way to relate the title. Fantastic. Looking forward to it next year. Maybe we'll be talking to you again right here at the sure. Poison Pen next year. Or up at the cabin, either way. At the cabin would be would be better. I would love to see that. Who knows where you'll be at in the, in the reconstruction. Absolutely. Of Absolutely. Like I said, as long as you got a front porch with a couple rocking chairs, something like that, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'll bring the bourbon. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure the insulation will be done, the ceilings will be done, the floors will be done, like at all the stoves and hearths will be all finished so i think by next year it'll actually be remarkably habitable look at so Perfect. keep it in mind i look forward to seeing it thank you very much appreciate <laughs> my it my pleasure thanks to craig for another great interview i hope to talk to him again next year at the poison pen or maybe at his cabin in the mountains who knows and thank you all for listening i'll be back soon with the full update talk to you then
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.